Holy Spirit, we come to these written words to hear you. Jesus said, let those who have ears hear. Help us to hear. To not simply listen to words that are being said or read, but to hear your voice, the same spirit that gave life to the universe and to man and and awakens and quickens the believer. May we hear from you. May we have the discernment to know your voice from the voice of so many other spirits in the world. And in listening to you and being moved by you, may we bring glory to the Son as you give glory to him and he gives glory to the Father. Jesus, help us to see you, even looking in the Old Testament, to see you, to see your heart, um, your steadfast love, your grace, your truth. And Father, as you sit as sovereign and ruler of the, of the universe, creator God, one and three, three and one, we worship you this morning. We give glory to you. We pray this by our, the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus to you, God, our creator and redeemer. Amen. I want to invite you to turn to the book of Second Samuel. Um, now, there's a, online, there's a... Um, there's a little handout, and we've got some copies of it back by the daisies on the back table um, if you want to grab it on the, on the rise of David um, and how David uh, became king. Um, unfortunately, in the amount of time that we have on a Sunday morning, I just can't get into um, everything that, that, that is moving around in this. And, and most, what most people know about David is uh, two things, that he killed Goliath and that he wrote a bunch of psalms. Um, But there's a whole lot more going on in the life of David, um, who the scriptures calls a man after God's own heart. And uh, as we mentioned last week, he establishes the house of David, Bet David, um, that rules over the kingdom of, of Judah for 400 years. And eventually Jesus is a descendant of David, and so he has incredible significance in the scriptures. I would actually argue that David is the keystone of understanding the Hebrew scriptures. While, while Moses is important and um, part of and, and is the lawgiver, uh, David establishes the identity of what it means to be um, what eventually becomes Jewish, to be a Hebrew, to be an Israelite, to be a, a member of Yehud Judah, the tribe of Judah and ultimately um, gives us the foundation of things. Now, just to put in context for this, David is crowned king of Judah around the year 1000 BC. That means that the narrative we're reading is detailing events that occurred 3000 years ago. Now, I just want you to pause for a second. Because it is so easy to take it for granted because we have millions and millions of printed copies of the Bible. And we think, where did the Bible come from? Well, it came from uh, Crossway Publishing, right? This is a document that is 3,000 years old. So something that has endured that long 
we have to take careful attention to ask why. Why did God give it? Why did God preserve it? What does it say to us beyond just what, what can I apply in my life? So there's tremendous, um, there's tremendous weight behind um, this text that we're reading in 2 Samuel. Um, we're gonna, we're actually gonna hit a couple of places in your, in your, in your bulletins. It says Second Samuel five through seven. It actually shifted around a little bit. Um, so what I want to do is I want to actually read two songs that David writes. Um, the first song is the lament over uh, Saul and Jonathan. Now Saul was the king that preceded David. Uh, Jonathan was Saul's son and heir apparent and also David's best friend and also David's brother-in-law because David married Saul's son, Michael. Um, so there's, um, there's all of these connections of these relationships. They're, they're all together. What? Daughter. Daughter, Michael. Sorry. Daughter, Michael. Sorry. Yes. All right. Daughter, Michael. Uh, yes. Bat, not Ben. All right. So, um, so this is Mary's the daughter, uh, Michael. All right, um, Saul's daughter. Um, never going to derail. Never get off that derail. All right. So anyway, Saul, Jonathan, and two other of of Saul's sons die in a battle in the Jezreel Valley, which is in the north of Israel, um, surrounded by the Philistines. A battle, by the way, that David was going to be a part of on the other side. And the Philistines refused to have him there. And probably they made a good decision because had David seen Saul threatened, he probably would have switched sides and protected Saul. Um, David was actually off dealing with raiders who had stolen his two other wives. He's got a lot of wives. We won't talk about that. Um, But... um, I want to pick a Second Samuel chapter one and verse seventeen is the first song. This is the lament over Saul and Jonathan. David l- lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son. He said that it should be taught to the people of Judah. And behold, it is written in the book of Joshua. Now we we don't have the book of Joshua. Um, but apparently this was some kind of record of the early period of Israel that the author of 2 Samuel relies upon. And this is one of his sources. But here is David's song. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You, daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in the scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. And I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. 
how the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Now, I want you to remember that Saul writes the, uh, David writes this song about the fall of a man who's tried to kill him multiple times. Saul was not all together upstairs. Now, that's a biblical term for he was kooky dukes. Um, the scriptures say that Saul was tortured by demons. Um, and, and if you read the story of Saul, you see that this is a man who is mentally unstable. He is really, really not in, in a safe state of mind. Um, he's hurling spears at his musicians. He threatens his own son with death over his friendship with David. He gives David um, his daughter, Michael, as a, as a wife. And his condition is that David uh, kill and circumcise a bunch of Philistines in order to get it, to get her. When David does it, he marries her off to another guy. He's just, he's just unstable. Um, in fact, he seems to have, looking at his son's, um, particularly his son Ishbosheth, there seems to be an inherited genetic um, issue uh, of of a mental health issue with these guys. Um, there are there are real um, problems, and yet when David finds out that Saul and Jonathan have died, and not only that they've died, but their bodies were beheaded and hung um, on the walls of a city. Um, to to uh, desecrate them so that they couldn't be buried. Um, when the bodies are actually rescued, um, they have to be burned and just their, their bones buried. They can't be buried. They've, they've um, deteriorated so badly. David weeps. He laments over the mighty who have fallen. The, 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 the men who um, had so much potential... Saul had so much potential when he first became the king. And it's all squandered. And Jonathan, David's uh, best friend. Um, Jonathan, a man who so understood what God was doing that, that when he found out that David was going to be the next king, Jonathan gave up his place. Of honor, He willingly said to David, I will follow you if you're going to be king. And yet Jonathan is killed probably defending his insane father. And so David laments over the tragedy of potential squandered, of power wasted, of anointing abused. And then I want to take a look just a couple verses over while you have that kind of hanging in your head. Years later, probably about probably about 20 years later, 15, 20 years later, David has conquered the city of Jerusalem, which is a Canaanite stronghold. Um, he actually is... He actually conquered the lower hill. There's a higher hill, um, the threshing floor of Aruna that he eventually takes over. But um, And he's built a home and he's brought the tabernacle, the, the tent of meeting to Jerusalem. And he's brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And, and as a result, the prophet Nathan um, is, has blessed him. He's given him a blessing. God has spoken to Nathan, given him a blessing. 
And David writes a second song in Second Samuel chapter 7 and verse 18. Then King David went in, so he goes into the tabernacle, and he sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you, for you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. There is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things, by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods? And you established yourself for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord God, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant, concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying the Lord of hosts is God over Israel. The house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation on your servant saying I will build you a house therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you and now O Lord God you are God your words are true you have promised this good thing to your servant now therefore may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you for you O Lord God have spoken And with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. So David writes a lament over Saul and Jonathan, the waste, the abuse, the the squandering of all that God has done. And then when God speaks through Nathan to David, David writes a song of gratefulness. And who is at the center of, of David's song. It is not David. See, if you want to talk about why David, the Bible calls David a man after the Lord's own heart, it is because David's heart, although he is a broken and sometimes sinful man, he breaks seven of the Ten Commandments in one night later on in 2 Samuel. But David's heart... David's heart is like the heart of God. His heart is always focused on the person of God and the work of God. His focus here is not on, isn't it wonderful, God, that you have me? Which so often, that was the issue with Saul. Saul always thought he knew better. He always thought that things were all about him. If you go back and read the book of 1 Samuel, when Saul is first chosen to be king, he hides in the luggage because he doesn't think that that God um, made the right choice. Because, well, look at me. 
And and when Saul is confronted with difficult decisions, he makes the decision that's most, he makes the choice that is most beneficial to him. He never thinks of the consequences of that. At one point, they're on their way marching to a battle, um, and, um, and he tells his soldiers not to eat until they get there, not understanding that his own son, Jonathan, doesn't agree with him, and Jonathan goes ahead and eats some honey he sees along the road. All right? And then Saul is now confronted with having to defy his own order because he can't kill his son. Saul just doesn't think. It's, it's all about him. It's, it's, it's individual. And so David laments over Saul, not just the person of Saul, but the waste of the covenant and the anointing. But then when he gets to respond to God, David very wisely says, not, dear God, thank you that you have me, but rather, I don't know why you chose me, but you did. And so I'm asking you, our God, to be our God. To build this house, because David acknowledges he cannot build it on his own. To establish your power, because David understands if he relies on his own power, he's going to fall down the same well that Saul fell down. See, here's the thing. Here's the thing. When Saul set about building the house of Saul and the house of Israel, he was building a house for himself. He was building a mansion of his own vanity. He never stops to ask whether God wants him to do things. All that Saul knows is he's king, so if he's king, he can do what he wants, and he proceeds to do whatever he wants. And no matter how many times God humbles Saul, he just goes ahead and does what he wants. One of the most interesting passages dealing with Saul um, is in the last chapter of 1 Samuel. Saul actually bans um, any kind of summoners, necromancers, or magicians from the kingdom of Israel. He bans them on the penalty of death. And then when he needs the answer to a question and Samuel is gone, the first thing he does is go and find a summoner necromancer in Israel. Um, Who, by the way, appears to have been a charlatan because when the ghost of Samuel actually appears, she's like freaked out. She's like, whoa, that wasn't supposed to happen. Um, Saul is just completely all over the place because he's building a house for himself. David, on the other hand, understands the purpose of God building a house. David understands what it means to be the head of the house of God's people. See, a house can be an end to itself. We've all visited people whose homes are a museum of their own vanity. Or the house has, um, you know, uh, just outlandish, out of control. How many of you have ever been to the to the cottages in Newport? You ever been to the Newport cottages? All right. The cottages, all right, where the marble in the front, uh, the front entryway of some of these places was like $10 million, all right, where the stuff, chandeliers that cost more than all of our homes combined, 
Um, because these wealthy people, and if you've ever read about the people that built the cottages, they were so unbelievably wealthy. It boggles the mind. I mean, insane wealthy, like building stables in their houses on Broadway in New York City so they didn't have to get off their horse outside. All right? Um, People who had um, parties where they gave everybody a bowl that was full of dirt with jewels and gold inside of it. And the, and the party favor was you got to dig and find your own jewelry. And we're not talking about making friendship bracelets. We're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars per person. Just outrageously wealthy people. In a time with no income tax, the wealthy weren't just wealthy. They were insanely wealthy. It's easy to build a house that's a museum of vanity. But what David is building is a house, a haven, a shelter for the people that God has made his own. See, what David understands is that a house isn't about what I build. It's about who I build it for. And... This is the foundation of the the house of David. The reason this house endures, the reason that the author of Samuel and Kings, whoever it was, records this story of the house of Israel is not just to show that that, eventually they fall and they go into exile, but to show where their foundation was strong. Their foundation was not building a house as an ends to itself, but building a house that serves the purpose a house serves, which is to house and protect the people the owner of the house loves. Now if we take that and we think about it in our world and our terms, we have to remember that the responsibilities that God gives us in this world are not mansions of our own vanity. They are not about us getting what we want, when we want it, how we want it. God has us building houses to protect, care for, and shelter the people he loves. And if we think of our responsibilities, our positions of authority, our positions of leadership, our positions of, of, of oversight, as being entrusted as stewards of a house for the people that God loves, it changes our priorities. Because the responsibility becomes less about how big a house I can build, how great a house I can build, how extraordinary a house I can build, how good looking a house I can build. And it becomes about the people that live in the house. And you say, well, that's great advice for parents. It's great advice for all of us. Because we are called not simply to um, worry about our own close kin, but to build houses and shelter metaphorically for all the people that God loves, that he brings into our lives. To protect them, not 
with our own abilities and our own advice and our own views, but with his word and his truth. To call them not to our mercy and grace, but to his loving kindness. The house that we build, the house that bears our name, is not ours. The people that live in it are not ours. They belong to the one who called us to build. In life, one of the most difficult decisions we will ever make is how we prioritize our our desire, our plans, our builds, our patterns in contrast to God's plans, patterns, priorities. It is a perpetual decision we are always making. How do I know what God wants me to do and how do I get my will and my desires conformed to his? Right? I know that y'all have mastered it. I'm still struggling every day with this. Because I look at the world and I see the things that I want changed. Or the things that I like. Or the things that I want to build. And they may not be the things that God wants. It may not be the house that he builds. You know, it's interesting. Every house is a little different. Except you live in Merrimack, then you get split-level ranch. That's it. You know, um, If you buy a house that was built between the 1960s, it's a split-level ranch. You get a choice. Do you get two garages, one garage, or extra storage? That's, that was the limit. Um, the reality is every house is different, right? Every home is different. Every... Everything that God does. And the most extraordinary thing about God is that he can use an infinite diversity of builders to build houses for his ever-growing family. But we have to be conformed to him. Ultimately, the houses we build, the work that we do, it is meant to be a shelter for others. An expression of the Hebrew word is chesed, of God's loving kindness, compassion, grace, mercy, truth, and love to those who don't deserve it, but he chooses to invite in anyway. And whether we're talking about the church, or we're talking about our families, or we're talking about our our responsibilities, we are called to be house builders. And if we build the house that God calls us to build for the people he calls us to build it for, that's the best we can do. That's all we can do. Um, I've mentioned this before, but how freeing. How freeing to not have the responsibility to build a church on my own shoulders based on my personality and my ability to do ministry stuff. Because there's some ministry stuff I'm terrible at. But instead to simply 
create an environment where people can encounter Jesus and journey together. I think that's on the bulletin. To, um, to more poetically, open the door to a time and space where people encounter God. We're called to build houses for people to meet him. Maybe they meet him in us. Maybe they meet him in someone else. But that's what we are doing. And we have to constantly be thinking not about the house we want to build, but the house he's called us to build for the people he loves. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, the house you call us to build, the, the, the lineage, the construction, the whatever you've called us to, help us to see clearly what you've asked us to do. For husbands and their relationships to their wives, wives in relationship to their husbands, parents to children, children to parents, grandparents to grandkids and, and their own kids and owners and workers and employees and churches and those who have been blessed with wealth and those who have been blessed with poverty and everybody in between. Lord, help us to see the house you've called us to build, the people you've called us to build it for. And help us, like David, to conform our hearts and our wills to you that you might be glorified as our God. We pray this in Jesus' name.